From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Congratulations, you found us. Come on in, out of the cold. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> uh, nobody says that anymore. You can, can you say that? Can you say that anymore? Well, we're saying it right now. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. Uh, Bilderberg tracker Daniel Estulin is standing by via Skype from somewhere in South America. I've kind of lost track. Uh, he's so busy and travels so much. He's either in Venezuela or Colombia, but we'll find out in a moment. Now, hey, good news. We believe we have resolved our HOA issues. Hang out on air. So, once again, we will be live streaming the radio program tonight on YouTube. And, of course, uh, Albert is here and uh, Ian, my capable colleagues. Uh, Ian in the other room, twisting the knobs and dials and getting set for another uh, a tour with his rockabilly band. You're, you're going on an extended trip in June, I think. You're touring, and then you're going to be over in England for the big Glastonbury Festival. Good, you're not playing. You, one day you will be performing at the Glastonbury Festival. I have every confidence, Ian. All right. Uh, and Albert, of course, here, as I say, um, my trusty uh, story producer, and he also runs our HOA. Incidentally, if you want to watch the live stream, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Click on the HOA link that's in the tweet at the top or near the top of my Twitter feed. Again, that's at Richard Serrett. And while you're there, please follow. Uh, get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca, and click on the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. Uh, and Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits, including, this is a rather timely piece, it's a reprint from last year, uh, but it's from the Guardian newspaper. It's a piece by Charlie Skelton, and uh, he attempts to explain why the mainstream media does not report on the annual Bilderberg meeting. Uh, the, uh, the headline, or the kicker on the story is, At the G7... Charlie writes, at the G7, we journalists were pampered. At Bilderberg, were harassed by police. Uh, so that's just one of the stories you'll find posted in the slide carousel at the Conspiracy Show uh, website. Again, go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the radio page. All right, let's talk Bilderbergs. Daniel Estelin is an award-winning investigative journalist. He's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and a Nobel Prize. He's the author of a number of books including Deconstructing WikiLeaks, uh, The Octopus Deception, Shadow Masters, uh, and The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, which is a runaway bestseller, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, where they're, you know, they're, they're very keen on this stuff and they're very aware of it. They don't have the firewall around the mainstream media. They know about the Bilderberg Groups, the average person. They're concerned about it, uh, yet here, I don't know, we seem to be a little bit asleep, but hopefully we'll change that uh, starting tonight. And um, if you haven't uh, purchased a copy of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, you really ought to. Uh, and, of course, you'll have an opportunity to buy the book at the event and get Daniel to sign it for you on uh, April the 17th. Uh, but um, this is, a, this is an, an amazing piece of work where he delves into a, a, a world which, which was once shrouded in complete mystery, uh, and really impenetrable security. Uh, this report provides a fascinating account of the annual meetings of the world's most powerful people, the Bilderberg Group, 
And since its inception in 1954 at the Bilderberg Hotel in the small Dutch town of Oosterbeek, uh, the Bilder Group has been comprised of European prime ministers, American presidents, the wealthiest CEOs of the world, all coming together to discuss the economic and political future of humanity. And the working press, as I say, has never been allowed to attend, uh, at least sort of the uh, those who sort of work in the trenches for the mainstream media. Now, the owners of the mainstream media, they certainly attend, but they're sworn to secrecy. Anyway, let's find all about it. Again, Daniel Estulin will be live uh, here in Toronto, Sunday, April 17th, at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, University of Toronto. And uh, right now, he joins us on The Conspiracy Show. Daniel, how are you, my friend? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Richard. And I've lost track of you. Are you in Colombia or Venezuela tonight? I'm in Colombia. I'm in Bogota right now. You're in Bogota. All right. And uh, I mentioned that you, you're asked to speak to parliaments uh, in South America, Latin America, uh, uh, across Europe, you've met with Fidel Castro, who has a copy of your book. You signed a book for him. Uh, what are these? When you're speaking before these parliaments, are you talking about the Bilderbergs? Are they interested in hearing about the Bilderbergs? Well, it depends because my first uh, um, uh, speech uh, in uh, in European Parliament, which would be the equivalent of the United States Congress, uh, was back in 2010, I think it was. And uh, I was invited by Mario Borghesio, who is a, one of the uh, key members of uh, Lega Nord, which is uh, the uh, right uh, group in the European Parliament. And uh, I gave a historic 15-minute speech on, on the Bilderbergers, and uh, um, we had uh, um, journalists from 47 countries attending my uh, my conference or press conference, I should say. And uh, uh, it certainly was, uh, you know, a, a, a very important moment in, in getting this stuff out into the open. Then I gave another speech a couple of years later on uh, on the uh, um, uh, the economic collapse, also the European Parliament. I gave a speech uh, at the Venezuela National Assembly in uh, in July in front of the uh, all the congressmen and then uh, of uh, of the nation and uh, we talked about you know the future of humanity the economic downturn i mentioned bilderberg you know the latin american economic situation and then just now about 2 weeks ago i was invited uh, was actually awarded uh, uh, latin america's highest prize for journalism in mexico and uh, they asked me to speak uh, uh, to the nation uh, um, alive uh, from the uh, national congress and uh, that was also a you know, historic first, where we talked about, you know, the need for Latin American nations to unite and, uh, you know, get, get rid of the uh, elitists who control the countries from behind the scenes. And uh, that was an, an hour and a half uh, speech to the nation uh, broadcast live. Just imagine if we could do something like that from the United States Congress, you know, broadcast live to the entire nation talking about the Bilderbergers or the world itself. Well, let's talk about uh, the group, and I, I, I sort of gave kind of a summation of, of who they are, but let's drill down a little bit on that, and, and we know they started in 1954 at the, the Bilderberg Hotel, that's why the name has stuck, and they, they've met every year without fail since 1954, is that correct? That's right, they meet once a year, usually about uh, uh, May, sometimes they meet in June, but generally speaking, it's somewhere in the middle of May. Uh, this year, it's uh, it's going to be held uh, in May in the Sierra City, California. It's Northern California. It's a tiny little town of about 200 people. 
Uh, it was actually uh, uh, built by the uh, by the Masons. I, I can't remember exactly where. It was like uh, 150 years ago, something like that. But uh, it's a, it's it's kind of an odd little place. Uh, but uh, it's certainly you know enough out of the way uh, for most people not to attend. But I think. Uh, you are going to get uh, quite a few people uh, attending these Bilderberg conferences because, you know, ever since my book came out back in 2005, uh, it has, uh, you know, gained quite a popularity. And uh, and so people come to these Bilderberg meetings as, as they used to go to the Woodstock um, uh, music festival. And, you know, back in the old days, Jim Tucker and I were the only ones who attended these meetings. And uh, now, you know, today you have people coming from all over the world, especially if it's, you know, the meetings are held in North America, you get quite a sizable you know, North American following. Right. You know, uh, and and it's interesting that and, for years they denied there was such a group. And then, and thanks to you, and you mentioned Jim Tucker, who has, again, worked tirelessly on, on uh, reporting on this and in infiltrating this group. They finally f- had to admit Okay, yes, we agree, we, we do exist and we do meet, but there's nothing to hide and so forth. When did that change? Was it as a result of your work and Jim Tucker's work revealing their secrets that, you know, they, here's where they're meeting, here's the list of attendees? Is that when they had to, you forced them to admit they exist? You know, I wouldn't say I forced them, but you know, I certainly had uh, you know a, a hand in, in getting them to uh, you know to become a bit more open than what they, you know what they used to be. Uh, you know, certainly Bilderberg has also over the years, you know, the the, the, the entire perspective of, of the organization itself changed. Back in the in the fifties, when the when the group was founded into the nineteen sixties, it was basically you know initially started as an organization put together literally by the Nazis or the people who were very much associated with, you know, with Nazi ideologies, both on the American side and the European side. And so the whole point of Bilderberg, when it was first put together by people such as Prince Bernard, who was a Nazi-carrying SS uh, car-carrying member up until 1934, uh, when he married Queen Juliana of, of the Netherlands. And uh, Walter Hallstein was the first president of the European, European Commission. He was a Nazi lawyer for Hitler. And then on the American side, you yeah, had the Rockefellers, you know, the, the, the Prescott Bushes, and, you know, the, the hair the Dulleses and so on and so forth. And all of these people, you know, as I said, they were or directly involved with the Nazis, as was the case with uh, Prince Bernard, or they, uh, you know, had dealings with the Nazis, you know, made money of the Nazis, or basically, you know, hid the, all the loot which they made uh, during the Second World War, such was the case with the Dulleses who were hiding Rockefeller's money. And so uh, when Bilderberg was first put together, Richard, uh, in 1954, it was actually, the, you know, the, the impetus to put together this organization began literally right at the end of the Second World War. And so the idea behind Bilderberg initially was, you know, to take all that, you know, stolen money, wealth, plunder, the Second yeah. World War, and bring it to South America and hide it there. And then in 1954, when the group was officially founded, all that, you know, wealth was brought back to Europe, you know, and you had the Fourth Reich recreated. Uh, but not recreated as a fourth right, but rather through the European Parliament, which is, you know, if you kind of look at the statues of the European Parliament, it's, you know, carbon copy of what the, you know, what the Nazis were trying to put together. All right, Daniel, I've got to jump in here because we're going to take a time out. We'll come back, continue to discuss the Bilderbergs, the true story of the Bilder group, uh, Bilderberg Group, the author, Pulitzer Prize nominee Daniel Estulin right here. We'll talk about his new movie and our upcoming event when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back. Daniel Estelin is with us, the Bilderberg Tracker, investigative journalist and uh, the author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, which has sold millions of copies. 
Uh, it's um, you know it's a runaway bestseller across Europe and has been out for. When did that come out? Now it's been what eight nine years, Daniel. Actually, this year we're celebrating the 10th anniversary. It was first released in Spain back in September 2005, and now this year is the 10th anniversary in, in the United States, and I think we are doing a new edition, which is going to be out with Trine Day uh, in, in September of, uh, of 2016. Excellent. Okay, so when you uh, when you come here on uh, Sunday, April the 17th, and you're going to be presenting the, the Canadian theatrical premiere of your new movie, the Bilderberg movie, and, and it, congratulations, it's a triumph. It's just, it's I mean, it's cinematically it's beautifully shot. There's a lot of original footage in there from around the world. The music, the way it's edited together, some amazing interviews. Uh, but but talk to me a little bit about how that movie came together. Well, you know, it came together back in 2000, and I think it was nine when uh, uh, an American Hollywood producer approached my publisher in the United States with the idea of making a documentary on the Bilderberg Group. And we were in the process of actually working on the script when the producer called, and, um, you know, he's going to remain nameless. And he basically said that he was pulling out of the project because he got a call from, we don't know who exactly, but, you know, the call was scary enough for the guy to pull out. And then uh, about in 2012, a, a Spanish uh, um, real estate developer who had a lot of money and was really a big fan of my work um, basically uh, uh, bought the rights to the uh, documentary and he wanted to, uh, you know, to produce it in uh, in Spain. And uh, again, we were not only in the process; we had the, we had the script initially uh, finished, and we were in the process of getting the crew together to go on the. Uh, on this, uh, on the tour of getting the interviews because in the end, this film, you know, we traveled to 13 countries, uh, 15 cities, uh, you know, original interviews from all over, from, you know, from, from three continents. And, uh, while we're getting that together in 2012, if you believe in conspiracy theories or coincidence theories, three banks were, you know, where this man had, you know, had loaned him money. They called in the loans on the same day and, be, and they basically bankrupted him. And so, uh, you know, I, I basically bought him out and I put my money into the project and me and and a friend of mine, or ex-friend of mine, we uh, basically decided, you know, to take it over and, and you know, do the rest of it. And the film was, you know, done in, in July of, uh, of uh, 2015 when my former partner called me and he basically said that Baker and Taylor, that's a subsidiary of the Carlisle group, you know, the Bushes, the Bin Ladens, etc. They basically bought him out. And so I had, you know, the Bin Ladens and the Bushes as my partners on the Bilderberg film. <laughs> <laughs> if you could believe that. You know, so basically these people owned half of the negative and I owned the other half. So I knew that if these were my partners, there was no way this film was going to ever come out. So basically what I did is I fired them as my partners. And we went around the world and in two and a half months, reshot all the interviews with all the people we had on board. And, uh, you know, so the film that uh, people are going to be seeing on the uh, 17th of April, that's in a couple of weeks. That's 100% my production, you know, my money. I'm the, uh, you know, the script writer on the film. And uh, as you said, it's, uh, the music is original. Uh, we've traveled to 13 countries, 15 cities, you know, to get this done. And it's, uh, it's unlike anything else out there. Well, people are in for a real treat. treat. And, and this is an important document uh, that, that you've put together. Not only, um, well, it's kind of a nice compendium piece to the to the book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. And you say there's a revised uh, edition coming out uh, for the 10th anniversary. Now, you also uh, have been in peril as a result of your work uncovering the secretive group, the Bilderbergs. And I remember you telling me a story, I think it's in the book as well, about an incident with an elevator shaft. Well, that was way back when. Yeah, it, that was in Toronto when, uh, in 1996 or nine, yeah, I think it was 1996 when the, when the Bilderbergs met in King City. Jim Tucker and I had just uncovered, 
uh, no, it was, uh, it was in 96, yeah, but, uh, uh, a few months before that, we uncovered, uh, some of their plans of, uh, not only getting Canada to split up, you know, through the Quebec referendum, which took place in 1995, <clears throat> but also the information we were getting from my sources, you know, the King City, uh, uh meeting, went a long way in, in scuttling some of their further plans for North American Union. And so I was meeting a source in, uh, I don't remember the name of, uh, of, uh, of the uh, skyscraper in Toronto, it's been so long now. But uh, um, you know, I, I, once the meeting was done, I pressed the button and the elevator doors opened. And there was no no floor. And the only reason I'm still talking today because you know, this member of the Bilderberger group he pulled me out of the shaft. And then when the police arrived, they basically said to me that I was really lucky to be alive because they said, you know, when the mafia kills, it's not you get some big fat guy, you know, pushes you down the shaft. But when the doors open, there's no floor. It's the inertia that pushes you down the shaft. And this is, I said to him, you know, you, you have no idea how right you are. So that was a very, you know, close call. But it was one of many. And in 2003, in France and Versailles, I was actually Bilderberg emissaries. And I also talk about it in the book. They offered me a blank check to basically cease and desist and go away and stop writing on, the, uh, you know, the things on the Bilderbergers. And uh, as I looked at the man, I said to him, you know, uh, please help me out. How many zeros is one's freedom worth? So they kind of looked at me and uh, they said, you can keep it as a momentum stress, Chalene. And they walked away. Because <laughs> they knew you weren't going to cash it. And you could have. I have a cashed. check. I have a, I, I could have. I could have. I have a check at home. Just, you know, the, just to give you an idea that I still have it. Now, Give us a sense of the of the of the, the structure of the Bilderberg. I know there's this kind of a permanent membership. There's a steering committee, and then there are those who are invited, uh, and they come from various quarters: industrialists, bankers, uh, media moguls, scientists. Uh, but give us a sense of the structure of the Bilderberg Group. Well, Bilderberg basically is your former NATO alliance. It's Western Europe, Canada, and the United States. It's one of many private and secretive organizations that they're not a secret society. The only uh, secret society in North America or in the United States is Skull and Bones, which was founded in 1832, and uh, it wasn't known until uh, 19, uh, 1980. And so that's a secret society. The Bushes, you know, uh, they, they were members, three generations of the Bushes were members of Skull and Bones. And, uh, you know, they directly come from the, you know, famous Bavarian Illuminati. But, uh, the Bilderbergers, you have the Trilateral Commission, which was founded by David Rockefeller back in 73, which is America's Europe and Asia, thus Trilateral Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which was founded in England, and in England is called Chatham House. And that's, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the American elitists who basically, you know, your parallel government of the United States. You have the Prince circle in Europe, you have, you know, Bohemian Grove that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly well known in, in North America as well. You have a lot of these, you know, private organizations, think tanks, foundations, they all work together. And Bilderberg is just one of the more elitist of these groups. Uh, Bilderberg is about 120, 130 members who are annually invited to this, you know, private soiree. Again, people who come are uh, presidents, prime ministers, ministers of defense, finance, uh, finance ministers, you know, your top billionaires, uh, CEOs of leading corporations, you know, obviously the mainstream publications are also invited. The sitting president of the United States never usually comes to these meetings because it's very difficult to get away, you know, and not be seen for three days. But it is, 
you know, it, you know, we, we can we can show that in 2008, both uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, Barack Obama they attended a Bilderberg conference when they met in Chantilly. Uh, they were way, if you remember that famous incident, they just kind of disappeared out the plane. Yes, I heard well, about that. they appeared. That. You know, yeah, they magically appeared at the Bilderberg conference. You had Bill Clinton who attended in 1995 in Baden-Baden before he was president, and at that meeting, David Rockefeller kind of you know pulled him aside and asked him. That was in 91. I think that was in 91. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he asked him what you know what he thought of the North American Free Trade Agreement, and, and Clinton had no idea what that was. And so Rockefeller gave him a master class, and he said, you know, Mr. Clinton, well, Bill, would you support it? You know, if you were president, and he said, is it important enough to you, David? And he said, yes, it is. And uh, Clinton said, of course I would. And so Rockefeller, you know, stretched out his hand and said, you know, thank you, Mr. President. Well, we know what happened, you know, in 1992. He became president in, uh, uh, in 1993, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Well, that's so it. Let me uh, just back up there uh, for a moment. That's, again, Danny, if I could just jump in and, pick, uh, and, and talk about that, because that's a fascinating uh, chapter, obviously, in American history. And people uh, may, may not remember that here he was, uh, Clinton, uh, the, 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 the governor of Arkansas, and, um, you know, a, a, not a very big state, not a powerful state, a very poor state. He was making, what, maybe $35,000 a year. Exactly, exactly. He, he was an unknown, and then immediately he bursts onto the scene, and before even anyone knows who he is, the mainstream media is declaring him the front runner. Is that how the – how does the Bilderberg wield power in, in order to get behind a candidate? How do they wield their influence and power? Well, again, this not, you know, Clinton's not the first case. If you kind of go back to, you know, to 1973, 1974, when, when the Trilateral Commission was founded, you know, the same thing happened with, you know, Jimmy Carter was one of the founding members of the Trilateral Commission. You know, there, there he was, you know, a peanut farmer from Georgia, you know, one day with 3% uh, approval rating in, you know, in the United States. Not only knew he was. And then the next day he's the president of the United States. Well, that's how things work. The power of the mainstream corporations. The mainstream media, because what the mainstream has done in the United States is they've convinced people that what you see on the cover of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you know, CNN, Fox, et cetera, et cetera, has to be the truth. And everything else, obviously, you know, consequently has to be a big lie. So what you and I are talking about doesn't exist because it's not on the cover of the New York Times. And that's what a lot of the times people say to me. Well, now a lot less so because of all the things, you know, that I've done, all the, you know, awards that I've won and the name recognition. But initially, you know, that was, you know, the, 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 the kind of, you know, their, their, their defense. Well, if what you're saying is true, why is it not on the cover of New York Times? Because what people, again, don't understand or don't seem to want to understand is that the mainstream publications, they form part of this world elite. Not, not, not one mainstream media source is free to report as they wish the things that they want to report. So if you kind of look at some of these corporations, such as the New York Times, for example, uh, one of the key shareholders is Chase Manhattan Bank. That's David Rockefeller outfit. You know what I mean? So it's all this, you know, this, this interwined corporations. They all work together. There's no way anybody can, you know, strike off on their own. And, uh, and, and that's all, you know, the, the control is exercised, you know, through the mainstream publications. Uh, because again, a lot of these corporations are traded on Wall Street. So you can easily destroy any one of them, uh, by, uh, you know, by, by playing them off against, you know, the main, the, the opinion of the masses. Is and, there anything uh, illegal? Kind of, is there anything illegal? I often hear, the, the, the Logan Act, for example, thrown out there and said, well, listen, if, if citizens or, or a, uh, a senator, a state senator or an elected official goes to these uh, meetings, they're in violation of the Logan Act. But are they really? Aren't they just, I mean, they're, are they breaking a law, I guess is my question. 
I, you know, I, I guess technically they are, but you know, uh, Richard, you know, if, if you kind of look at you know how everybody meets, and it's I don't care if you're talking about the president of the United States meeting with his you know officials, if you're talking about uh, uh, you know congressmen, European commissioners, uh, you know trilateral commission, international monetary fund, World Bank, G7, all of, you know Davos, all of these meetings are held in private. And the reason that they're held in private is that they want the public to know what they're talking about. So, you know, you could say the same thing about a hockey team. You know, the Toronto Maple Leafs, when the coaching staff are planning their strategy, the, you know, the whole thing is done in private. The media is not invited. You know, so you could, you know, technically say that they're in violation of the Logan Act. And probably it's true. But, you know, that would be the least of their worries because, again, all of these things are done in private. And most of the times, we didn't know that these things exist. And so until my book came out in, you know, 2005, we knew, uh, people knew that, you know, you had your coup d'etats and, you know, the, the economic cycles and the 1973, you know, oil embargo and the price increased by 400%. People, you know, in, in you know instinctively knew or know that something is doing somehow something behind the scenes. They just, you know, didn't quite figure out who was doing what to whom until my book came out and then you had, you know, the names and the faces and their deeds and the documents and the deliberations and suddenly these they, invisible they until then, you know, became visible and we knew who they were and people immediately thought that aha, so the Bilderbergers run the world. Bilderbergers don't run the world. What they do do is meet secretly as everyone else does. But needless to say, the things that they talk about obviously go against the interests of 99% of humanity. Right. And as I always say, um, um, and people say, well, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. The idea here is that they, they're at least they're attempting to stage manage events. It, does, events. it doesn't mean they're always successful. But the fact that they're trying and that their interests don't coincide with our interests – uh, we're, we're coming up on a break here. Let's just start this conversation now and we'll continue after the break. But I, I, you, you mentioned the oil uh, uh, crisis of uh, 1973, and this is, this is brought up in the film, and we don't want to give everything away, obviously. But <coughs> this is an example uh, of how, you say, the Bilderbergs uh, manipulate and manage, stage manage events. Talk to me about, let's start the discussion of what happened in 1973 with the oil crisis and how the Bilderbergs were involved. Oh, let me give, you know. Let, let me give you another example, which is much closer to Canada. You know, the whole you know Quebec independence thing. The reason I got into Bilderberg, Richard, is because in 1992 I was in Toronto having lunch, in, you know, at a Spanish restaurant just off of Young Street with a guy, a friend of mine, uh, who was ex-member of the KGB, Soviet KGB, and I was taking potato sandwich uh, lunch. This guy, matter of factly, told me in 1992 that in 1995 there's going to be a referendum in Quebec, and the people who run the world from behind the scenes are going to try to separate Quebec, you know, from the rest of Canada and merge English-speaking Canada with the United States. And, you know, when I asked him why, he said because the people in Washington needed to balance their budget. Well, 1995 comes around, and all these characters that none of us have ever heard of, you know, these extremist parties, you know, the, the Reform Party and, you know, some of these peepsqueak parties, you know, from Atlantic Canada, and, you know, this, you know the, the, the uh, nationalists uh, uh, in Quebec, Parti de Quebec, and so on and so forth, all these individuals – most of them had, you know, had absolutely, you know, no business being on mainstream television. They were front and center, and it appeared that the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of the United States were powerless to stop, you know, this juggernaut. And then when that happened, and I remember what happened back in 1992, okay, I said to myself, if the presidents and prime ministers are powerless to do anything about this, you know, who the heck runs the world? And that's how I got into Bilderberg. All right. Fascinating, fascinating. When we come back, maybe we'll touch on the oil uh 
crisis as well, the energy crisis. People of a certain age will remember that, lineups at the gas station. All right, we will uh, continue our conversation with the Bilderberg tracker, Daniel S. Chillen. Back with more in a moment. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusion. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Daniel Estulin, the Bilderberg Tracker, joins us. Pulitzer Prize nominee, Nobel Prize uh, nominee, award-winning investigative journalist, and um, the author of many books, including The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, which is now celebrating its 10th anniversary and is a revised edition. Uh, that's coming out, and um, you can uh, get a signed copy of that book at the uh, the live event we're uh, having here in Toronto at the University of Toronto, Sunday, April the 17th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, and you can go to uh, the live events page at Strange Planet Productions uh, for more information and uh, to order tickets. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you, Daniel, about the energy crisis in 1973, and you're saying that that was engineered at a Bilderberg Group meeting. Well, you know, in, in May 1973, the Bilderberg is met at this exclusive resort in Sweden, at this town called Salsobaden. And so the, the key point on the Bilderberg meeting agenda was the oil shock of 1973, the 400% targeted increase in the price of OPEC oil in the near future. Now, what happened was that the oil shock, was, it was, in fact, you know, a hoax. It wasn't just a shock of 1973 and continued until 1979. And, and the whole point of this oil shock or crisis was to create a nominal flow of money into the hands of the Saudis and the other Persian Gulf wealthy nations. And so what the oil hoax ultimately did was it created this enormous volume of wealth transfer nominally into these OPEC countries, the so-called petrodollars, but all that money went to London and Wall Street to be managed. So the financial oligarchy and its uh, major centers used the oil hoax to establish an absolute domination over world credit and to make sure that it no longer went for any development. Now, the reason the whole thing was orchestrated in the first place, Richard, is if you remember, because of the low oil prices in the early 1970s, you know, the third world countries, uh, in, you know, Latin American and, and, and African nations, they were in the process of becoming the competition, you know, to the Rockefellers and the European and American elite. And to make sure that didn't happen, the the Bilderbergers agreed in this 1973 May meeting to push the oil prices up from a 350 a barrel to somewhere between 10 and 12 dollars a barrel, and you know six months later the oil price went to 11.65, which is right in the middle between 10 and 12. And we have the documents, you know, from the 1973 Bilderberger meetings. Well, you see on on page 65 how they were deliberating and actually agreeing on the consensus of how they would move this oil price up, you know, from 350 a barrel to somewhere between 10 and 12 dollars a barrel and when you when you kind of see these things happen and of course as a result of this 400% targeted increase in the price of OPEC oil you know the emerging economies you know they were wiped out and again what emerged is the again the Rockefellers and the European elite uh, became the uh, the the the, the uh, full scale owners of uh, of you know this progress and development which uh, uh, which we're trying to destroy and you know in in, in the uh, emerging economies. So it was a money tra- it was a wealth transfer essentially. Exactly. You know, the same thing as, 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 you know, we can talk about another wealth transfer, which was, uh, you know, the Great Depression, which really wasn't the Great Depression. It was the transfer of wealth. You know, we, you know, the people, we lost our monies, our, our you know, our shares, our, you know, if we had gold, our houses and so on and so forth. And then somebody else came along, such as the Bank of America, for example, and bought everything up for pennies on the dollar. And so that's how Bank of America became, you know, Bank of America. You know, it emerged, uh, you know, through the, uh, 
the uh, Great Depression, uh, the transfer of wealth. So when you kind of look at these crises, be it, uh, you know, the crisis of today, the crisis of the 1973, the Great Depression, and so on and so forth, the money doesn't disappear. It simply changes hands. And usually we lose, and the elite, be it the Bilderbergers or their members, make all the money at our expense. So uh, how does it work, then, that uh, you have these media moguls that, that end up being invited. I believe, uh, confirm or deny, was, the late Peter Jennings was once attending a, a Bilderberg meeting, I believe. Uh, is that true? Did, Peter Jennings, did he attend? Yeah, I, 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 Peter Jennings attended the meeting. Uh, uh, Peter Mansbridge uh, from CBC, he also attended the meeting in 2010. We have photographs of him at the... Uh, at the CGIS meeting in Spain, the outskirts of Barcelona. Um, All the media, the mainstream publications, they're all members of Bilderberg. But over the years, Fox has attended, uh, CNN obviously has been there, New York Times, Washington Post, Le Monde, The Economist, Wall Street Journal, all these publications, they attend. And the reason that they attend is because, again, they agreed to keep quiet. And a lot of the people who don't understand how these conspiracies work, Think that it's absolutely impossible to keep it secret, but it's actually very easy to keep it secret because when you get the presidents and the prime ministers and the ministers of finance, you know, the presidents of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, you know, European Central Bank, Federal Reserve, and so on and so forth, all get together and work together towards a common goal. If somebody doesn't follow in the footsteps, it's not that they're going to kill them. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. It's simply you're going to have this, you know, these individuals completely isolated from, you know, from the rest of the wealth world's well, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to, you know, to actually do anything productive. That is scary. It's one thing to be a journalist, to go there, to attend, and then be sworn to secrecy. But it's another thing uh, to then be pushing that agenda through the mainstream media. That is nefarious. All right, Daniel Estelin stays with us, award-winning investigative journalist and author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Daniel Estulin is a Pulitzer Prize nominee, award-winning investigative journalist, author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, and his uh, brand-new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie. I mean, it's really time for people in North America to appreciate what's going on, the way that they... I mean, they know about these things in in Europe. They know about these things in South America. What is it about here in Toronto or here in North America? Is there, is there a firewall around the mainstream media that that doesn't exist elsewhere? What is it? Well, you know, because again, you know, the the power of the, of the North American mainstream press is, is overwhelming uh, on the one hand. But also, you know, that said. You, I, you can't, uh, I mean, look, my publisher in America, Chris Milligan of Trying Day Press, it's a small publisher. Nobody, you know, no, no uh, Penguin Books or Random House will publish my books, obviously. But still, you know, we sold over half a million copies in the United States alone. And uh, when I did, uh, uh, 10 years ago, when the, when the book first came out, you know, and, and Fidel Castro invited me in 2010 to visit him after he read the, you know, the true story of the Bilderberg Group in, in Spanish, no? Uh, well, Bilderberg went to number four on, on Amazon.com. So, again, there's a lot of attention is being paid by but but, but as you said, it's, it's very difficult to get through to the mainstream press. You don't usually get interviewed on CNN or Fox or you know, New York Times. You don't get your book reviewed. Because for obvious reasons, as we've discussed before, mainstream publications form part of the world elite. 
All right. Um, how we were talking about how you get your information. Uh, how soon will you find out who's on the uh, the invite invite list for the for the next? Well, month? that's usually. Well, you know, this this meeting is being held in uh, in in May. So what what basically happens is. Um, uh, the way that, you know, the structure of, of, of the attendees is put together, you get about 120, 130 people who attend these meetings. The, uh, the United States gets about a third of the delegates because it's the biggest country. Um, European, large European nations usually get about, you know, five, six delegates. Um, smaller countries like Spain and, uh, and Greece and Portugal, Denmark, you know, they get about two, three. Usually the people who come from, from, from each of these countries, you have one, uh, mainstream media representative. You know, some big wig politician and, uh, you know, billionaire owner of some, you know, corporation. In the United States, needless to say, you have people from the foundations and think tanks, uh, corporate media, uh, corporations and so on and so forth. And, uh, but what usually happens is that each country has their own, uh, Bilderberger representative. In other words, this person is in charge of putting together the initial list. Which is, uh, you know, once the meeting is done in May, by about uh, end of July, early August, you have the initial, you know, proposal of about 20 to 30 names, which are submitted to the, you know, the Bilderberger Inner Circle, Bilderberger Committee, uh, from each country's delegates. So you have, uh, again, uh, about uh, 30 people from each country submitted, you know, to the original, uh, uh, original list submitted to the, uh, to the Bilderberg Inner Circle. And then they start kind of working that list down. And by early January or mid-January at the latest, you have the first, you know, the the initial final list of the potential delegates. And these usually, especially now in the United States with the elections coming up, you're going to have, um, you know, promising senator or somebody who could, you know, make a difference, you know, in 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 future of of the Supreme Court. This is what happened back in 2004 in Italy when John Edwards, when he was, uh, you know, running for uh, on the Democratic ticket uh, with uh, with John Kerry for, you know, for the vice presidency. He was invited to the Bilderberg meeting. They heard what he had to say, you know, on the state of the uh, of uh, of uh, of the United States of the Union, and they really liked it a lot. And so the New York Times actually had to admit once. Once I reported in the Bilderberg report that uh, it's quite possible that John Edwards was picked as the vice presidential candidate on a Democratic ticket because of the great impression he made at the 2004 Bilderberg meeting. And that's usually how these how these things work. The you know, I won't have the final list until the uh, probably about a week before the meeting starts because uh, they keep that very close to the chest. Right. I got to ask you, though, is really I got to ask you about Trump. I mean, this guy is the ultimate outsider. He has a lot of establishment people, never mind, you know, his unpresidential uh, persona. Uh, but, but the fact that he is really, and this is historic, he is, yes, he's very wealthy, but he, I mean, he's a, he's a piker compared to the, 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 the attendees at the, at the Bilderberg meeting. Do you think he would get a meet, would he get an invite or is he considered a pariah because he's not part of the club and he's not going to go along with their agenda? Well, he wouldn't. He wouldn't get it right for for one very simple reason. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. You know, he'd come out and blabber it all out. You know, to the public the, the following day. It's not that you know. It, it has nothing to do with being a millionaire or a billionaire because you could say the same thing in Italy. The former prime minister of Italy, his, you know, Silvio Berlusconi, who has a you know personal wealth of over thirty billion dollars. He was never invited to a Bilderberger meeting because he was a nationalist, and he could also he could never keep his mouth shut. 
Do you know what I mean? So that's why they would never invite Trump because you know he'd just blabber it out the next day. Do you think but, you the, know, the Bilderbergs are? Trump, do you think the Bilderbergs are are very concerned about Trump taking the White House because he is a nationalist? <clears throat> well, you know, again, it all depends. I don't think he's a nationalist. It just all depends, you know, on, on how you want to look at it. If you look at it from the point of view of the elite and you kind of forget about Bilderberg for a second because, you know, above Bilderberg, there's a lot of other organizations far more powerful than they are. You kind of have to look at, you know, what's important to the elite, you know, as far as the world agenda is concerned. And what's important today, Richard, if you kind of look on the world stage, is infrastructure, and this is one of the things we'll be talking about at the conference. I'll explain how, for example, back in the 1990s, you know, some of these very powerful people, you know, they basically uh, took out all the wealth from the G7 nations and they reinvested that wealth, you know, into the emerging markets. Now they bubbled these markets. And 20 years later, what are they going to do? You know, they're going to explode these markets. And you look, you look, you're seeing at the, for example, the, uh, uh, some of these bubbles, uh, the, the, uh, derivatives bubble, that's a 2.4 quadrillion dollar bubble. I mean, you could never pay that thing off. And so the whole point is, all that money is going to be reinvested in infrastructure. It's going to be reinvested in, re in infrastructure in countries such as India and China, which is the world's, you know, largest countries, most populous nations. And also it's going to be reinvested, you know, in space-based economy, which is a very, very important point. And if you kind of look at the people, for example, who run Chinese Politburo, they're not lawyers or investment bankers. They're all engineers. And so the elitists who run the world from behind the scenes, they need somebody who could, you know, take this wealth and manage it, you know. And, you know, Hillary Clinton is, she, she's not, uh, uh, she, you know, she's not equipped to do that because she's a lawyer. And, you know, Trump is not equipped to do that because, you know, he's just a big blabbermouth. And that's one of the reasons, if you kind of think back a couple of months ago, they, you know, they have this trial balloon where Bloomberg said that he was going to run for office. And, you know, they shut that down quickly because, you know, they realized in 24 hours that his approval rating was like, you know, 0.5%. So I wouldn't, you know, put it past them. It's not just Trump or Hillary Clinton. They're going to try to push someone else in there who could actually manage that wealth. And these are, you know, some of the things that people don't see because it's not, you know, easily, uh, you know, evident. But these are the kinds of things that, you know, we'll be talking about at my conference because I want to explain to people how some of these, you know, structures work behind the scenes on the deep geopolitical level. It's not just you know what you see. It's not black and white. It's not you know you know this guy or that guy. It's not you know us against them. And and Trump is you know Trump is again is just it's 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 a protest vote against you know the, this this corrupt elite establishment. That's all it is. And you know if you have to choose between a Trump and a Hillary Clinton, you know I'd much prefer Trump because at least you know you you know you see what he, you know you get what you see. Well, Hillary you know Clinton you know she's been involved in drug trade you know going back you know to to her husband's administration in the in the 1990s you know she's corrupt to the core and so between these two although I wouldn't vote anyone you know either one of them for, to you know to office if I had to choose between these two I'd certainly vote for Trump. All right, well, Daniel, uh, this is going to be uh, an amazing event. Can't wait to, you know, it's. I think I don't think we've actually met in in person for ten, twelve years. Uh, we've you know, had conversations on Skype, so it's going to be great to see you. You're going to be uh, uh, flying in. I don't know if you remember, Richard, but you were, you know, actually 
uh, when I came to Toronto back in 2007 to, you know, to, to promote my book when it was first released in the United States, you know, you uh, were the first people who interviewed me live on the radio. I thought it was in before Toronto that, but maybe, okay. I thought it was a little earlier than that, but no, maybe. No, 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 it, okay. it was 2007. All right, still almost 10 years ago. in Spain ago. in 2005. All right, nearly exactly. 10 years ago, but it's been too long, but uh, we're going to, we're going to rectify that on April the 17th, and you'll be on the stage. We certainly will. At the J.J.R. McLeod uh, Auditorium at the University. University of Toronto, and again, people can go to strangeplanet.ca, go to the live events page, get their tickets. All right, Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, safe travels, and uh, we will see you here on the 17th. Richard, thank you so much for having me on your show, and needless to say, I'm looking very much forward to the event in my hometown, Toronto, Canada. There you go. Daniel Estulin, award-winning investigative journalist, Pulitzer Prize nominee. Albert... Uh, Again, running our HOA, and it seem, things seem to be working very well. Excellent. All right. Uh, my website, again, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth. Mm-hmm.